Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome to episode three of the Doctors Are People Too podcast. I have to begin this episode once again by thanking you, our audience. You have shown such support for this podcast. Our audience continues to grow. Our global outreach continues to grow. We have listeners from across the country and across the world. So thank you for your continued support. I've heard from a lot of you on Facebook, Instagram, via email. Please continue to reach out. I love to hear from you. I love to hear your thoughts on the episodes. And I'd love to hear future topics that you recommend. And for today's episode, I think we have another good one. I want to bring you back to 2016. I was a fourth-year medical student at the time, and I was addicted to NBC's Chicago Med. I mean, this was going to be my life. My favorite character had to be Sarah Reese. Why? She was also a fourth-year medical student in the show, just like me. I loved watching how she worked in the ER. I assume that's what I'd be doing as well. One of my favorite episodes of that first season was episode 13. In this episode, Sarah comes across a very sick patient, one who has pressure building up around the brain. She identifies that her patient needs a burr hole, essentially a hole made through the skull to relieve that pressure. What happens next truly made my jaw drop. Take a listen. You will initially hear the nurse and the voice that takes over the situation, that's Sarah. Mr. Watts? Mr. Wirtz, his pressure just shot up over 190. He's not breathing and his pupils are blown. Call neurosurgery, I need to intubate. He just got a head CT, look. That's in that food you sign air building up in his skull, which means this is not mucus coming out of his nose, it's cerebral spinal fluid from his brain. He must have fallen a few days ago. This isn't a sinus infection. This is an anterior skull fraction. If we don't release the pressure immediately, he's going to die. I'm in. Aggie, get the drill. Got you. Uh, Dr. Choi, I need you to drill a burr hole. Can't. Gunshot just came in. But this man's got a... You've seen it done. Do it. Who's going to do this? I am. But you're a med student. You can't drill a hole into a man's head. Somebody has to. Here, we're both going to catch hell for this. Yeah. Crazy, right? Thanks to NBC for that sound. It was a riveting scene, but one that made me question exactly how accurate shows were being when it came to portraying medicine. I mean, I had never done a burr hole by myself in the ER as a medical student, and I didn't think any other medical student had, maybe even in all of history. To be fair, in the show, Sarah does get into a lot of trouble, but she did save the patient's life. And that brings us to today's episode. Whether it's for the medicine or for the drama, I think we all are guilty of watching these shows. Chicago Med, Grey's Anatomy, Scrubs, there's just so many out there. And for this episode, I wanted to find out what truly goes into creating a medical television show. Lucky enough, I was able to chat with Dr. Oren Gottfried, a professor of neurosurgery at the Duke University School of Medicine. When he's not seeing patients in the clinic or operating in the OR, Dr. Gottfried serves as a medical advisor for television shows, including The Good Doctor and even Chicago Med. 
We had a great discussion, not only about his role as a contributor to these shows, but also his view on the medical television landscape as a whole. It was really enlightening to hear the similarities between television production and practicing medicine. I think you'll really enjoy his unique perspective on this topic. You'll hear part one today and the rest of our chat next week. I hope you enjoy. Lights, camera, action. Dr. Oren Gottfried, welcome to the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your exciting television work uh, on this podcast, we always like to start with an icebreaker. And so my question to you is, what is your typical morning routine as a neurosurgeon? I mean, in general, I usually wake up around 4.30 or 5 o'clock. I usually check in with my chart and see if I can write any patients and look at my schedule for the day and solidify the plans and get ready and head off to work rounding on some patients in the morning before surgery, separate before before clinic. And a quick follow-up question to that. Where does breakfast play into all of this? I, I know for me, I can't wake up that early and eat breakfast, but if you're heading into the clinic, even into surgery, several hours on your feet, are you eating breakfast before this? I usually um, grab a protein bar on my way out and I do drink some coffee. So I'll put together my iced coffee because I can gulp it down real quickly and it fits my schedule better and eat a protein bar. I like it. So let's get into your exciting work. And I'll say from the outset, when I started this podcast, I think it's stories like yours that I really wanted to focus on. Uh, you know, doctors doing exciting work outside of the traditional, quote unquote, traditional realm of medicine. And your story as a, a medical consultant in television started with a post-it and a fake patient from Los Angeles. Is that right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so I was new faculty. I was working as my first role in neurosurgery in an academic position. I was um, looking to treat as many patients as I could and just getting getting going. And I received a post-it note from my administrator at the time that said that I need to call back a physician from California. Um, there was no way in the world I was going to call back, but I thought that would be a long transfer of care. And maybe a patient was moving from California, um, but I didn't know what I was up against, what I was going to be faced with. And it turns out it was a, a TV writer that was working on a pilot, and he did have a patient discussed with me. The patient didn't exist in real life, but it was, from what I recall, a neurosurgeon trying to treat his own disease or treat a spouse's disease. And um, he had to use skills well beyond his skill set to try to fix the issue. So. Um, naturally, it seemed kind of exciting to me to help with an uh, imaginary patient, um, but also to think creatively, and things just got going from there. That sounds great, and I'm sure even as a neurosurgeon, that was probably one of the more exciting calls to get. Yeah, it was kind of unexpected, and I wasn't even the first person to be called. One of my colleagues was called before me, didn't return the call, and I'm just happy for that. I mean, that chance encounter I could have missed, and it all turned out good. And just to come full circle on the story, the person asking for advice was a Duke um, University medicine graduate. So the connection was he was calling back his, you know, his former medical school and relying on neurosurgeons at his former medical school. I like that. And before this cold call, did you have any interest in, in television and media? I mean, were you acting in, in plays in high school? Did you, did you have any interest in that before this call? I would say my direct interest beforehand was that I watch TV and that I'm very critical of how medicine is portrayed on TV. So he did find a good target. 
but I hadn't planned out any approach to work into TV or entertainment. I was just, you know, happy to be a neurosurgeon and doing what I do. But that phone call and what it has led to has definitely enhanced my life and helps my um, you know, creative outlet and resiliency and really a lot of it's had a lot of collateral goodness. As a television medical consultant, what are some of the roles and responsibilities you play in, in advising medical TV shows? And so in general, I mean, I think the field of medical consulting is divided up into those who work with the writers, more on creating the story, and then those that actually spend day to day on set and make sure that the production appears as real as the creative storyline. So those individuals actually are spending a lot of time on the ground working with actors in production. I work on the writing end, but occasionally I get called up to set and get to help on the production end, but to a far less extent. So the, the biggest responsibilities are to be a factual foundation for the writers. So merely uh, them pitching, pitching a story and giving them the medical illness that is best suited, or they might have a medical illness in mind and revising the story to fit with medical reality. Um, as the role gets more um, involved, and there's trust, mutual trust, then the medical consultant can start pitching original stories and, you know, really um, thinking about the, the story that's presented and how to enhance it. So I feel at the base level is just um, judging the truth, giving the truth back to the writers, helping them with their stories. But at a greater level, it's actually pitching stories and being part of the creative process. And what's that experience like in the writer's room? I mean, you hear a slightly different type of television show, but something like Saturday Night Live, that's really where all the magic happens in the writing room. Um, so what's that, what's that like for you when you're in those rooms? So I, I mean, pre-COVID, I usually would get an invite maybe once a year, sometimes twice a year to just fly out to LA and spend a day in the room. And it is exciting. I mean, one aspect of it is that I've worked with the writers before I showed up for a long time. So I've had... Uh, you know, working relationship with many of them. So it's not like I'm walking into a complete, you know, group of people I have no clue and they know who I am, they know what I've attempted to contribute, but just sitting there and seeing the process. I mean, now, even with um, with Zoom and you know, teleconference, I sit in sometimes on the room and I know when I enter the room, it changes things a little because the focus is probably on the medicine and not the other stories, but it's great, it's fun. And I've now worked with several different shows that I've been either teleconferenced in or actually sat in the room. And I think it's great. It's just, it's just nice to watch the collaborative effort, to watch the team. I think in medicine, we work on teams all the time. Some of the teams are you know, quite focused on the patient right in front of us or working on administrative duties, but it's just um, working on a story together. seems like it just seems so fun to me. And then just sitting in the room and having my opinion valued and, I, the first few times in the room, I really didn't speak unless I was called upon. And I do realize there's experience all around me. These people that might have been in TV for 20 years, and here's this guy that's just a doctor. You know, I don't, where do I fit in? So I, I selectively speak. But when it gets to the medicine, I think um, the writers prefer not to speak. They prefer to have the details filled in. And then they tell us, you know, did, sometimes I miss the target. Sometimes I fill in medicine. They're like, no, 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 that's not what I was thinking. And, uh, you know, so even I have to be, um, I'm somewhat vulnerable in my creative efforts, even when it comes to the medicine, but together, 
we can merge a really cool, you know, their really cool story with a really cool medical story and hopefully have success on the, the end where doctors are actually watching the show, audiences are watching the show, and no one's, you know, throwing their, I don't know, their remote at the screen. You know, I just never wanted to end that way. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I want to follow up on, on something you mentioned in terms of collaboration. And you're in the operating rooms. Certainly, there's a lot of collaboration there. I'm in the emergency room, same sort of thing. So I wonder, you're talking about collaboration in a different sense in terms of putting a show together, but are there overlaps in terms of some of the skills you see of, of how people communicate, how people interact in these rooms versus what you see in your own OR? Yeah, well, I think about in the OR, what makes a perfect case? And so everybody's on the same page. The goals are the same. There's good communication. Um, there's anticipation of the next step. So. I mean, just from when you roll back to the OR, when's the approval given to anesthesia to roll back? When is the time to position? Everybody's very courteous of the fact that we all want to do our job, and our job is a certain interval of the case, but it's not the whole interval. And you have to be mindful that you know when anesthesia is doing the intubation, putting in lines. If I rush them and we skip any step, and then we get into a situation where we needed an extra IV or an A line, um, things are really different. So. I, I tend to see the whole process in front of me at once and realize I'm just one part of this process and each member of the team is very important. So then circling back to my observations of a writer's room, I feel like there are people of all different experience level, different stories. I mean, when it comes to writing, your own personal experiences and your ability to create unique fictional experiences is very important. And because people come from different generations, different backgrounds, different experiences, um, it's just such a nice, fruitful collaboration. I always think of the concept, if you had a committee of just you, like a bunch of yous on the committee, I mean, how much would you really accomplish? Would it be even, is there any benefit to the committee at that point? There isn't. But when you bring together 10 to 15 people, it's just exciting because everybody kind of adds a little bit at a time and you create this, you know, really important thing. Um, in writing, you know, generally most episodes are written by one or two or three of the writers and producers. So there's already uh, collaboration at that level, but every one of them seems to contribute. And I'm not there every day. I just see, you know, I write notes on scripts, but I see the evolution of the original the idea that the writer ran by me and then I see where it goes. And I, I'm just very mindful of the fact that I think all of the writers and producers have contributed to that final story, but ultimately one or two or three kind of takes responsibility and is the primary lead on it. Sure. And I think it's it's interesting how in medicine, I think the, the best cases and the smoothest cases and most successful cases are when people all come together and are working as one team. And obviously we, we do a lot in training to, to get to that. Um, and uh -huh. it's interesting to hear that in show business and creating shows, it's the same thing. You really need to work as one team in order to produce the most successful work. Now, I'm wondering, in addition to some of the uh, the expertise that you bring in story arcs and plot lines, uh, I think there's probably a lot of other things you bring in. You talk about how initially it's probably a little bit of an imposter syndrome that you're coming into this room with writers. But as you've gone through, are there other things that you're able to bring in terms of you know, even just helping actors with the pronunciation of medical terminology, teaching people how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to behave in the operating room in order to create the most realistic picture. Correct. I mean, some of my roles um, over time have been to pronounce all the medical terms 
and I don't directly speak with the actors, but I'm aware that some of these recordings are going right to the actors to listen to. And then I question myself, if I'm, am I speaking like a TV doctor should speak? I'm just speaking like myself. I'm just a, you know, a neurosurgeon speaking, but you know, these are top notch um, surgeons on TV. So I want to make sure that I say it correctly, but to talk about things that I provide, I hope I provide that aren't just the technical details. I think um, culture, I mean, what is the work culture like in the OR? I know patients don't like to think that we would talk about anything else besides their care. And just so you know, it's a disclosure, I only talk about my patients. But in general, you know, there are times where the team does talk about other things. And so what are they talking about? I think on TV there is a tendency to have these really in-depth conversations that are really exploring the person, the, you know, the character. Um, but we do talk about things and how we feel. And we're always being cognizant of the surgery in front of us. What do doctors talk about in the break room, in the lounge, you know, outside the hospital? I don't think you can do a Google search and see how do doctors react when they have a difficult outcome or have a patient who, you know, they're really struggling with having the patient understand why the plan that is recommended is probably a good plan and not a threatening plan. So I think um, even coming down to what kind of meetings do doctors attend? I honestly sit in, and I'm sure you do too, so many meetings and, you know, I'm on the administrative end, I, a vice chair in my department and directors of various things. And so I go to a lot of meetings. So even when the writers want to know what meeting would this character go to, I can rattle off 10 meetings I went to today that they probably would similarly go to. I, I'm the quality person for my group and I incorporate quality and safety moves for the characters when I can. I am not pushy to get my agenda across, but when it's relevant, I can show that um, characters are working on higher value care, you know, reducing wastes in the OR. I mean, all these concepts that are so important to me as a doctor, I just feel like it's an opportunity to uh, hopefully educate the writers and greater audiences on things we deal with. Um, I don't think anybody's thought in the last few years, um, doctors and clinicians have it easy. I don't think that's something anyone thinks about. And so why is that? And how does that affect us? And how does it affect you know, turnover in nurses and staff? We're at a point in medicine where people are just leaving and we don't know if they're going to do another parallel job or they're leaving medicine, but there's just a insane amount of turnover. These are concepts that I try to get across to the writers and try to incorporate into our scripts. Sure. And I, I envision you having the same similar conversations that I have with my friends when I try to explain what I do for work and kind of comes full circle because their assumption of what I do is probably based on the work that you do in television. They're watching these shows and they assume that that's what I do as well. Yeah, I mean, I look at my greatest critic and believe me, I do get trolled at times. People watch a two second clip of a show and it's on like social media. They didn't even watch the episode. It's completely out of context, but they tell me that's not at all like the differential diagnosis that would be discussed. And as you understand, there's a backstory to how did they get to that point of discussing that differential. And so I feel kind of responsible, completely responsible to try to make this as realistic as possible. But I'm also loyal to not only every doctor, clinician, nurse watching, I'm also loyal to my writers and they have great stories. And I don't want to step on their story with too much jargon, too much accuracy. And so I, it's a difficult part of my job because I want it to be totally accurate. But I also accept that 
their story has greater weight than my medical accuracy, and we need to align and collaborate. Um, but I don't want to ruin it for your friends, you know, for you, for your friends, that they watch a show and they get a sense that, you know, this is how the ER is run. And, you know, you know when you turn on a TV show, you're accepting the, ra- the reality of that show. And every show has its own reality they live in. And of course, there's crossover shows and shows that live in a similar reality. But I mean, if you don't agree with the reality of the show you're watching, don't watch it. It's just that simple. But if you, you know, if you like a show, then you accept that reality. And as long as the writers are consistent with that reality, you really can't ask for anything more. It's just a lesson I've learned. Uh, I've learned how to talk to doctors that don't like something they've seen on a show. And if they knew how much effort it took just to get to that place of accuracy, and they will if they talk to me enough. But again, my, my bottom line is that the hospital looks like a real hospital, feels like a real hospital, sounds like it, and shows that value having a consultant. They've, they've done what they need to do. Um, the shows that don't even realize they need a consultant, maybe it's not a medical show and just has a, a medicine-heavy episode, that's where they're going to get into big trouble. But um, I get consulted just per episode from shows that aren't medical that realize they want a neurosurgeon or a doctor to chime in. And I, I just think that's great. Yeah, I think it's a good point in terms of creating a consistent reality within the individual TV shows. I think we're seeing that a lot now, whether shows are incorporating COVID into their world of television. Are there big pitfalls or sort of egregious errors across the board, even maybe before you started in this industry, that you've seen sort of across different shows when it comes to medicine? Yeah, I mean, I, I because I'm working on it on a daily basis, I tend to think these aren't errors. But how much reality is allowed to in, into each episode is not a fixed amount. You know, like we could always get 90% of the medicine right, but we're not going to let you have that last 10%. That's not how it's looked at. But I mean, to run a code, and you, you know how to run a code, even, you know, bet, much far better than I would. I would think any ER doctor would and multiple other experts. But we know how long. I mean, you could run a code for 40 minutes. You could have someone that has a a shockable rhythm and you shock them. But in the end on TV, I mean, there are papers, there are research articles that show the propensity of shocking or having shockable rhythms is like, you know, ridiculous. And then we've all seen 100% someone have a systole that was shocked. You know, we've seen that. And that is really something that bugs a lot of people. So I always try to, I mean, I know very well what are shockable rhythms. I always say, just make it a shockable rhythm. And I'm not speaking about the shows I'm on now, but just in general. I think the thing that bugs medicine people is that you can't have an expert in every specialty. When we're in the hospital, I mean, on a given day, you may consult 40 different services. And so there's 40 different experts. And then there's their whole team. So each one of these teams has, you know, five people. Well, a TV show couldn't run like that. You couldn't have 200 characters on every episode. That would be really complex. So you obviously have a lot of cross coverage where you have a surgeon that covers several different fields or your general doctor covers it all. Again, it goes back to accept the reality that that show is in or don't. But we know in medicine there are far more specialists. Another thing is in any episode, it's 42 minutes. You're not going to take care of a complex once-in-a-lifetime case, solve it, fix them in that 42 minutes. There's a lot that happens off-camera. And just so everyone knows, I have notes of what happens off-camera. Even if you only see the 42 minutes, in my mind and in my notes, I've accounted for the whole episode of care. It may never appear online on TV, but it exists. 
And that's how I have to think about things. Um, but in general, things just once in a lifetime cases happen too often. And that's just because those are interesting cases. They need to be solved in a very expedited fashion. A lot happens off air. Even sometimes the most important aspect that glues the whole story together happened off camera. But again, if, if you watch and you want to know, it happened in the minds of not just myself, but all of the medical advisors. We think like that. Um, so I would say not errors, but sometimes we're not able to take it to the greater than 90% level or greater than 80% level. And it's just, um, it's not possible. It doesn't fit with how the medical advisor fits in. We, we review scripts and outlines and we provide notes and we provide compelling arguments to take our notes. But there are compelling arguments for the writer to keep their story tight and tell the story, they, the narrative they want to tell. And overall, I have been amazed by the flexibility of the writers. So they realize that the medicine is so important to me and all my colleagues that are medical advisors, and they value that. And it would be much different if they thought that we were just an antagonist to their story and we're just fighting it at every level. Our notes are just there for them to try to use as well as they can. At the end of the day, I'm not insulted or bothered when they can't be used. I understand the bigger picture, but would I like all of them to be taken off? I would. But the story is much more important than anything I could provide. Absolutely. Switching gears a little bit. Uh, you know, when I go home for the holidays, ever since I, I became an MD, you always get the questions from your family and friends, the sort of out there crazy medical questions, right? As soon as you graduate medical school, you're equipped to become all of your family's doctor. And I'd imagine as you interact with a lot of these creative television minds, some of those maybe out there storylines or questions or things that you're hearing as well. Am I wrong? I do hear things that are kind of on the cusp of extreme. Um, just so you know, as a foundation, I've worked on science fiction shows and I've worked on horror shows and shows that have no, I mean, just like superpowers. So I guess my bias is that when I get asked questions for those shows, it is so extreme that now when I get asked questions in a reality of one of the medical dramas, it doesn't seem that extreme at all. So, I mean, you could have people like questions, how, how does mind reading work? But they're not talking about like, in our world, we're like truly, you know, telepathic reading of the mind. So I have to explain what brain center is responsible for truly mind reading, not just like working on seeing someone's facial expressions and gestures and interpreting. And so I think I'm a little biased because I find those um, storylines, you know, like looking into dystopian realities in the future and coming up with new medical technology that doesn't exist. It's really fun for me because I can completely make up stuff worse. On my medical dramas, everything I write in the notes comes with a reference. Like I will not put something in a note unless I can reference it. And many of my notes come with 50 references. Now, my writers don't want to read those 50, but I keep them. And sometimes after the show airs, someone says, was this accurate? And I can you know, show them the links to the actual articles. So in general, I, I kind of work in a spectrum of reality. And I ask myself, how much reality does do the writers on this particular episode, this particular show need? And I try to adjust my answer to that. And how about with reality shows? I mean, one of, one of my favorite recent, of recent memories is Lennox Hill on Netflix. Uh, followed several doctors in Lennox Hill Hospital here in New York City. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering whether you think, you know, no reality shows are not quite reality. But what's the obligation for those shows to display the medicine and the situations they're explaining in a realistic manner? I 
think it's very similar, but they're going to show isolated cases that really show the emotional struggles of patients and physicians. I have not personally been involved with a you know, reality show to that extent. I've certainly um, consulted a little and talked to people about things. Um, I think it probably is a very tough responsibility. And the way I look at things is whatever outcome is being displayed on what makes it to air, there's a life that went on beyond the, that episode for a year, two years. And by the time it airs, whatever you've talked about could have, you know, cancer could have recurred. Um, you know, they could have had a catastrophic complication. So I always look at the production as very complicated, whereas a fictional show that has no basis in reality, there's not more to worry about after the episode. But I do worry for reality that people change their mind about appearing on air. Um, you have to get a lot of footage. I do wonder how the camera changes the interaction. I, I know in general when we're being watched or taped or recorded, it does change things. And I'd always worry how does that have any impact on the patient-doctor relationship. I mean, sometimes I have the choice to go in and talk to a patient in clinic, and sometimes I have a choice of, you know, having a medical student or a resident come in with me. And just having another person in the room could change the dynamic. Think about what a camera could do and the production crew. So these are things I worry about just for how I interact with patients. At the same time, the flip side is people are getting um, into a hospital, you know, they're seeing what happens behind closed doors. And so I think that's very educational. I think it also demystifies being in the hospital. It's showing, you know, these complex situations. You don't have to go through it yourself, but you're going through it vicariously. I think it could have a lot of um, benefits. But in the end, I think there's just so many different things at play. And I think it's very complex. But I would hope that it portrays the patient how they wanted to be portrayed. I think the doctor signed up for this. And the patient signed up but doesn't really know what that means. And I just hope that at the end of the day, the families and the patients are left with a good taste from the project and nothing negative. That's going to do it for part one of our discussion with Dr. Oren Gottfried. I hope you've enjoyed so far and stay tuned for next week when we finish our discussion and I speak with Dr. Gottfried about his thoughts on current and past medical television shows. We also play a fun game of Explain Your Tweet. Thank you for listening to the third episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to share it with your family and friends. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Do you have a question or comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next week, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Take care.